Hello, everybody. Uh, if you'll excuse the way I want to start, I just want to say that I had a dream, and uh, it was that we would have a night like this soon after we opened the new Art Gallery of Ontario. And it's so wonderful that you're here because I believe so strongly that we do what we do, but it's you in your experience of art and your respect for artists that bring institutions like this alive. So it's really gratifying to all of us that you're here. And I want to say thank you for your belief in your art gallery in Ontario. It's um, not entirely easy times as we figure out how to move to the future. Uh, but make no mistake, we will move to the future. In the next two or three weeks, we'll be announcing our upcoming exhibition program. And our intention is to smother you with exhibitions and talks and to make truly the case, the profound case that now more than ever, public institutions like your Art Gallery of Ontario mean something to the idea of civic space and uh, life in the place that you make your home. So thank you very much for your support and your belief in us. And I will say what I say to the staff and the volunteers of the Art Gallery every day, we won't let you down because we know how important this institution is to all of you. So thank you very, very much for your support and being here tonight. So uh, I'm not actually going to introduce Kara, even though I sort of want to, because uh, it's so great that she's here. But I'm going to ask Catherine Desager, our Director of Exhibitions and Publications at the Art Gallery of Ontario, to say something about Kara and her place and our belief in how important Kara's work is to the new Art Gallery of Ontario. So with great pleasure, maybe this is the first time you're meeting Catherine, Catherine Desager, our Director of Exhibitions and Publications. Well, considering the high attendance tonight, Kara, uh, you're really an amazing and definitely an acclaimed artist. <laughs> so we're very happy to have you here. And I have been fortunate to meet Kara somewhat 15 years ago. I can't believe it's going so fast. For the first time, and um, I followed her work since then, and it was in 94 when I was a visiting curator at the ICA in Boston and curating the exhibition Inside the Visible. And together with a friend of Kara, with Ellen Gallagher, I went to visit her in Providence while she was still studying and obtaining an MFA at the Rhode Island School of Design in painting and printmaking. And later on, a BFA in painting, printmaking at Atlanta College of Art. The same, <laughs> it's reverse. <laughs> we just had a conversation about that, that Kara always reverses things, but now I'm trying, I'm starting to do the same thing. So, um, the same year, in 94, Kara had an exhibition at the Drawing Center in New York, where she exhibited her first large-scale cut paper silhouette mural. And, you know, it was somewhat, I hope I say this right, 50 feet long and 13 feet high. And that was an unprecedented um, in form, in scale, and in subject matter. So we seem to link up a little bit here and there. And some of Kara's exhibitions have been shown at the Renaissance Society in Chicago, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, and the Whitney Museum in New York. And in 97, Kara was one of the youngest artists to receive the MacArthur Fellowship. And she now works and lives in New York and is on the faculty of the MFA program at Columbia, Columbia University. So, Kara mentions being drawn to early American or Victorian silhouettes following her interest in kitsch, and I guess she will explain that. 
and began working with cut paper silhouettes around 93, exploring the raw intersection of power, repression, race, gender, and sexuality through these iconic and very unruly silhouetted figures, Kara employs techniques and media ranging from painting and drawing to film and slide projection and also written text. With one foot in the historical realism of slavery and the other in the fantastical space of the romance novel, Kara's nightmarish fictions simultaneously seduce, but also implicate the audience. And when I decided to work with Kara for the reinstallation of the European galleries at the AGO, I wanted to juxtapose her work with the Flemish painter Bruegel. So someone, weird connection, some people were thinking for a gallery entitled Encounters with Diversity, but then you can imagine my amazement and joy when I went to the, her studio and the only other work she had up on the wall, besides her beautiful collages and cutout figures, was a poster of a familiar peasant wedding by Bruegel. So it seems like a good sign to me. And now, in this context, Kara's two-channel video piece brings the past into the present and adds the drama of the gallery space. In the films, she uses shadow puppets to enact two stories, inspired by the records of an, of an American agency established in 1865 to assist former slaves and refugees of the Civil War. Though the scenes appear very peaceful at times and pastoral, an underlying hostility and cruelty soon surface, which make the work unsettling. Kara Walker has been fearless in her critical approach of the politics of gender, race, and class. Always she tackles the mechanism of negative self-identification, the tendency for people to define themselves in opposition to others. So the strength of Kara's inspired work is both in its questioning and inverting the stereotypical discourse about the other. In short, and indirectly, it is partly art like Kara's that has made it possible for Barack Obama to be elected as president of the US. Thank you so much, Kara, <laughs> for your extraordinary work and your great contribution to thinking society differently. <laughs> Welcome, Kara, together with me. Hi, good afternoon. Now I've got entirely too much responsibility um, placed on me. I, um, first of all, cannot speak as well as Barack Obama publicly. Uh, I'm not entirely generous, and, um, <laughs> and my work is somewhat mean-spirited. Um, but, but thank you anyway. I'll, 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 we'll discuss that later. Um, um, so these presentations, you have to know I can't see any of you anymore. You're sort of a, a dark space out there, which is kind of fitting in a way because it seems to be how I approach my, um, my studio practice. My, um, every, every encounter with, uh, you know, the blank page is a little bit about, um, you know, looking into the void or looking into the subconscious and just mucking around and seeing what, what uh, I find there. Um, so I'm going to start with this image. It's a postcard from sometime maybe the late 19th century or early 20th. And this postcard was a gift to me um, when I still lived in Atlanta in um, the early 90s, let's say. Um, and after receiving this gift, I started collecting a few, a few other varieties of postcard. But this one is the one that actually stuck with me. And I'm sorry that I'm making a lot of noise here. I'm not really sure why. 
Um, so anyway, this postcard was, was important to me, um, largely because of the, the image of a, of a young girl. And um, it got me, I was already kind of interested in, in kitsch, as, as Catherine said, or at least in romance, and romance novels, or at least the, the kind of, um, you know, sort of grandiose gestures that one finds in, in the sort of genre of romance, and uh, the sort of, you know, overwrought passions. Um, but but this this image uh, is important to me largely because it it crosses the line between you know fiction kitsch and history, um, and because it um, complicates um, ideas about subject and object about um, the voice the voice of the the author this the, or the voice of the subject the the tagline, some class, eh, is really the thing that, that carried my work forward, I think. Um, the notion that this is a type of image that was widely circulated and um, suggested that, you know, there was an in-joke that, um, that I was, actually wasn't privy to and um, there was something really kind of snarky and, and uh, um, yeah, well, or snarky and sneaky uh, about ac acquiring this image and sort of respecting the the sort of nebulous space that this image sort of occupies as sort of a, an artwork and as a and as a representation of of a, a really sort of damning stereotype and and as uh, maybe an evocation of a kind of spirited youth, you know, like there's this actual human being here. She's not a cartoon character, even though she's made out to be one. In any case, this is, this is the image that started me um, on a kind of a journey uh, to investigate, I guess, the narrative and um, the past in a very sort of, in a very sort of concrete location, and that location was, say, the either the American South, the American antebellum South, because I, was grow I lived in Georgia from age 13 up through my early 20s. Um, and it gave me a place to kind of uh, explore my um, social and psychological development in this arena that was kind of mired in, in um, racist um, facts and racist fictions. Um, so anyway, um, the first piece that I did professionally as a, well, semi-professionally as a burgeoning artist was this installation. Uh, originally it uh, was installed at the Drawing Center. Um, it's a 50-foot wall. This is a reinstallation someplace else. Um, and what I'm not exactly showing here is the progression that led to this work. Um, what I wanted to do for this slide presentation, or what I wanted to foist on you, was um, uh, a trajectory that maybe, um, you know, embraced the the kinds of activities that go on in my studio, but maybe pushes beyond, um, pushes pushes my conversation to the things I'm thinking about right now. So, in any case, this first piece, um, it's cut paper on a wall with adhesive. Um, the steps that led me to this were chaotic. Um, um, it was not a, a straight, uh, straightforward approach uh, to say, oh, well, let me do something that looks uh, old-fashioned. Um, I, I, I came out of a, a painting background, and um, one of the uh, reckonings that I had about painting was that uh, painting was this kind of was representative to me of a kind of patriarchal site, or at least the type of painting that I wanted to make. You know, sort of big and heroic, and you know, Ross Blechner-like, and uh, somewhat macho. And um, and I recognized two things. One, I couldn't really do it in the way that I wanted it to be done, or I didn't trust the paintings that I made, um, because they seemed to be coming out of this kind of um, an attitude that was not particularly politically correct, which was um, trying to kind of sidle up with the boys. Um, instead of rejecting that attitude outright, I decided to see what, um, what that was all about and um, kind of embrace it 
Um, another part of my, my practice, or the chaos of my early, or my, my continuing um, studio practice, if I can call it that, is um, I draw a lot, sometimes very quick one-offs for these watercolors, and in series, lots of them, um, sometimes 100 drawings, just in a sitting, just to kind of clear my, to clear my head and then to focus. Um, and then I do some kinds of writing projects, um, also kind of in keeping with this, starting with this interest in romance novels, but also just trying to keep uh, a, on in touch with my, my voice. Um, so for instance, this watercolor drawing was a part of a series uh, called Negress Notes. It was an ongoing series of, of watercolors done somewhat quickly. And this is one from a group um, where I was examining uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin and um, trying to kind of get at what I thought one of those maybe psychological underpinnings. In, in my very sort of quirky, un, unstudied way, I thought, well, um, Uncle Tom sort of represents this kind of maternal, you know, he's sort of, you know, this kind of sexless, nurturing figure in the novel. And I was kind of curious about, um, you know, what happens, you know, in, in my own, um, um, in my own mind, in my own psychology, when I start trying to kind of reconcile his masculinity and his femininity um, all at once. Uh, and you'll probably notice that the little girl or the pickaninny or the little black girl or whatever you want to call her um, is the main sort of reoccurring figure uh, in my work. Um, so from a series of watercolors like that last one, this installation um, grew out of it more or less. So you have kind of, it's just called The End of Uncle Tom and the grand allegorical tableau of Ava in heaven. And, um, you know, it has Uncle Tom sort of giving birth and little Ava sort of, you know, uh, ceremonially chopping off her own head instead of giving her golden locks to the crying slaves as she lay dying in her bed. It's just kind of a fantasy of, of, uh, of this sort of mutated uh, novel um, sort of performing, you know, my embrace and my rejection and my reworking of all of uh, its sort of characters and tropes and the and the, and the sort of tropes of the author, you know, and my and my sort of imaginings of what the author's sort of secret longings are for her characters. Um, and I apologize because some of these slides are um, bad. <laughs> there are scans from you know older um, 35 millimeter slides, um, and I'm really so this is like the broad sweep of the installation work. I was uh, actually going to skip it. That's what I, I was going to kind of gloss over, having ever done any installation work, largely because I just uh, finished about a year and a half or two years of of, of traveling with uh, my sort of. I don't want to call it mid-career yet, but it was a retrospective that traveled from Minneapolis to Paris to Texas to, uh, was in LA and New York as well. And, um, and I got a little bit tired of um, sort of talking about the silhouettes. Um, I think that's just because when, um, when I hear my name mentioned, <laughs> by others, it's in conjunction with the word silhouette. And I never wanted to say it again. Um, in any case, um, these paper cuts, these I think would be more appropriately paper cuts or Scherenschnitte because it was shown in Switzerland. Um, this piece is uh, a little bit off the plantation trajectory and into a little bit more of a diasporic uh, conversation about um, uh, well, about Europe, about uh, primitivism, about the, the sort of uh, European sort of conquests of things African, whether they be sculptures or countries, or um, a, an idea of, 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 you know, sort of a hybrid idea of the primitive, which embraces a kind of, you know, zoophilia. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's conquest. Um, 
redux, and it's sort of done to a Brancusi jazz kind of beat. And uh, the um, installation, this was installed at the um, Bayale Museum in a show that was about, um, you know, ornamental and the abstraction, uh, and abstraction. But the Bayale Museum has this large collection of sort of primitive, so-called primitive artworks from Africa, from uh, Oceania, um, from, you know, from, from um, the Pacific Islands. And, um, and it's mixed in with, you know, sort of the great masters, so-called, of the 20th century. Uh, in a really kind of blunt and you know obvious way, and I uh, was asked to kind of make a piece about that, and I thought, well, you know, that's just it was too easy. Um, the um, but what was kind of you know pleasurable about it, and I'm sorry that I don't have a slide of this, was there was a Matisse cutout on the opposite wall that was framed behind glass, and it was uh, a piece. I think it was called Oceana, and it's you know it's very kind of you know lovely sort of sea-like forms, but, um, but the structure of this piece is kind of modeled on that. So when you look at the Matisse thing, you can see my little figures bopping around in between. Um, they weren't actually happy about that, the, the Swiss. Um, um, so basically, I'm trying to show what I was doing with the cutouts from the you know, straight kind of narrative, black and white um, plantation scenario, which is, you know, recurs uh, again here to this kind of um, conversation about maybe colonialism um, and uh, to sort of trying to find a way into something more dimensional. Um, now, why I wanted to get dimensional, I think, has to do, I think, with, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of way that power is meted out in, among the figures in my work. You know, you have figures who seem to be sort of recognizably black or Negro or sort of, you know, um, Africanized or whatever the term is, and figures who seem to be maybe white or Caucasian or European or whatever, you, you know, and then figures who are maybe a little bit indeterminate and maybe I want to keep it that way. Maybe I have sort of an idea of them in my mind, but it should be a little bit ambiguous. Um, so, you know, you have these kinds of uh, ambiguities, you know, about who's in charge and who's being violated and who's being, you know, who's a victim and who's an, a perpetrator. And, you know, you know, every time I, I try and set up a scenario where you think we might know the outcome, I try and kind of unsettle it or undo it. And, and I think that the same sort of structure was happening with the silhouette work, where I kind of wanted to, you know, sort of upset the kind of easy read or the expectation that you could sort of say, oh, it's black and white on the wall, or, um, you know, it reads from right to left, or um, just to sort of introduce another sort of narrative um, dimension. So. Uh, to sort of place these figures, um, you know, one of the jokes with the other, uh, well, with the wall works is that there is sort of no place, you know, and there's sort of no thing in a way. There's sort of um, these holes that have been removed from a source and placed in another blank space, and blank space on top of a blank space. And, um, in any case, this is a, a, a piece called Darky Town, Darky Town Rebellion, um, and it's gets it's pretty surreal, I suppose. Um, the, ta the, the title for it actually came from a little uh, American, early American painting that I found in a book of, you know, called American Primitives, um, which I did a series of small um, sort of rudimentary landscape paintings called American Primitives, and one of them was this landscape called Darky Town. Um, um, so in my studio, I come back to drawing or sort of painting, trying to sort of either they're sketches, sometimes I think they're finished, and sometimes they just have to sort of be in the world. Um, this is a, sort of a large gouache called Insurrection. And this is a slightly unrelated uh, projection piece called Insurrection. Our tools were rudimentary, yet we pressed on. 
and it's an, again from an older slide. This is from about 2000. Um, the projection pieces um, were also kind of, um, I was kind of interested also in just using this didactic, um, very easy, simplified tool, the overhead projectors that, you know, were used in classrooms and may still be in some places um, to kind of get light and, and color and an idea of space in, into the room really quickly, but in a very sort of fragile, um, fragile way because, of course, you know, as soon as you walk in front of it, you're interrupting the piece. You cause it to disappear, reappear. It shrinks and grows. <clears throat> And the idea for, I mean, maybe the, the starting point for, for the image, which you can't see, which, you know, is kind of hilarious, um, is a, 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 from a sketch I did of, it's kind of like the, the gross clinic, you know, there's a kind of a surgery going on in the, in the center with uh, the slaves eviscerating the master with kitchen utensils. Um, um, and then, okay, so this is a black on black piece. It's, it reads gray on black, but it's actually because of the way you move through the room or the way the light hits the paper um, creates this little bit of shimmer. Um, so it's black and white and um, uh, black and white paper on black wall uh, called, it's actually from a large installation. Um, and this is uh, excavated from the black heart of a negress. Um, and it kind of returns again to uh, sort of plantation tropes and ideas of um, sort of self-entrapment, uh, self-abnegation, um, and, um, and sort of, I suppose it kind of creates a game of, you know, do you want to see this or not? When you're actually standing in front of it, can you see this or not? Um. So, like I said, all of those figures that appear gray, they might have actually been photoshopped a little bit because they're, they're, you know, quite flat and black on a fairly flat black wall. And that's sort of an excerpt from the final image of uh, uh, sort of the right-hand sweep of that wall, the, um, the, the excavation or the evisceration. So... Um, so then we go to here. <laughs> this is where I was going to start and just leave you hanging, waiting for more, cruelly. Um, and I'm going to get some water quickly. Sorry. So these um, white panels, dryly arranged in a grid, are my painting. I decided that I wanted to make a painting again. Um, largely because when I started making these cutouts way back in the day, uh, well, I was actually still in graduate school, and I had I had arrived there with kind of a kind of a, a large um, sort of backlog of of sort of unprocessed information uh, about you know as I said about uh, my adolescence, about living in the South, about the Mythologies around the black body in, um, you know, in, in black culture and white culture and uh, in the sort of in pop culture, and um, and and with the kind of chip on my shoulder about painting itself, about my place in painting history and my ability to sort of insert myself in that in that location or my willingness to. Um, and what I found myself doing, in addition to drawing a lot and writing, crazy writing, uh, typing all the time, anybody who was in graduate school with me remembers the sound of my typewriter, and they were fairly gentle about, you know, asking me if that was me typing. You typing? <laughs> Furiously. Um, we didn't have, uh, like, walls. <laughs> So it was a very open uh, kind of cathedral-like space. So I apologize. But in any case, I did the writings and the, and the, and the drawings. And I was kind of in the process of rejecting painting um, in a very uh, cathartic way. And 
the silhouettes kind of grew out of this rejection of, of kind of a rejection of the modern or rejection of the postmodern. Uh, as I think drawing felt a little bit rebellious at that time in the early 90s. There was just this moment where, you know, you know, there was sort of big painting and big sculpture and things were sort of like very heroic and just to do this, this kind of sort of second class work um, felt very, very true in a way, very much in keeping with the, the project that I was kind of um, somewhat therapeutically, you know, uncovering, which was the, the you know, like trying to define a, trying to define a black girl um, in this, you know, abstract context, or trying to define an abstraction, you know, and apply it to another abstract space, the space of a canvas or a piece of paper. Um, and when I say, you know, a black girl is an abstract space, I'm talking about, you know, what is, you know, what is myself versus this sort of identity that's imposed from, you know, from without, from whatever without is. If, if that's pop culture, if it's my parents, it's, you know, school, whatever. There's a, a there's an image and there's a, you know, subject. And um, so I'm kind of at that place again, but relative to my own body of work, the body of work that was touring part of the world and um, and just you know in, in relation to what does it mean now to to cut a figure um, now that the figures that I cut are sort of recognized in the way that they are so in some ways this is a, a sort of a chastising moment these um, what I'm calling paintings uh, and in another way it's feeling very kind of cathartic. This is not necessarily where the work ends. This is sort of where most of my work begins um, with some kind of writing. Um, but as I said, these aren't writings, they're paintings. Um, now, why are they paintings? Um, they are, a, there's 52 um, posters, poster paper size, you know, Bristol board with ink drawn with a brush, painted with a brush, just so I could have my hand involved. They're about the body, or they're about the disappearance of the body, maybe. And they're about a, a, a violent act that causes either the disappearance of s the loss of self, the loss of self-control, the loss of the recognition of right or wrong, or about the loss of uh, clarity of um, victimizer and victim. Um, there are some voices that there's, they're related to things that I've heard and then sort of comment on in a, yet another somewhat fictionalized voice on top. They're things that I've read on the internet that I've sort of reworked kind of in my own voice. Um, they're in many cases, me pushing myself to say or think, actually because these are kind of silent practices, to think the worst thing that I can, and then to go beyond that and see if I can think something worse, because I imagine if I can think something bad, then somebody's already done it. Um, sometimes they're just poetic thoughts on the process of painting or the process of making a, a something. Um, I feel like these are about the relationship of the, of the painter to her um, canvas or paper, whatever, in this case. Um, and that there's a part of me, and maybe this is that sort of self-abnegating kind of voice again, there's a part of me that, uh, again, finds the, the will to paint or to make something, or the will to create, kind of walking hand in hand with a somewhat destructive um, sensibility. I mean, I feel like that's, at least that's where this work is coming from. I don't know that this applies to everybody, but this is definitely what I'm thinking about. I'm trying to see if I can find one. So for instance, um, most of the 
work that I had in this uh, show, at, uh, it was a gallery show that happened concurrent with my um, sort of retrospective exhibition at, when it was up at the Whitney in New York. And I think I had a fair amount of anxiety about putting together a gallery show that was somehow in, in keeping with that other artist who was in, ensconced in the museum. I wanted to kind of, um, in some ways, reject that work or see what the opposite of that work would look like if it was possible. Not necessarily, you know, to make um, pretty trees, but to, um, I think I had a sense that the moment the show went up, it sort of made it palatable. I don't know that anybody else felt that way. <laughs> but somehow it being institutionalized made, made the work, um, it gave the work a, a, a voice that it needed, but it also, um, I think it took a tiny bit of a voice away, you know, and, and so this is where um, this uh, project comes out. I'm not gonna show you all 52, or I'm not gonna make you read all 52. Um, and of course, that's why I arranged them in a giant, you know, 20-foot grid on the wall or 30-foot grid. There's, there's, you know, the, the, the will or the desire of an audience to actually read a bunch of text is, I think, fairly, um, you know, minimal. Um, but there was other work in the show that was an attempt to uh, either clarify, um, no, no, no skip clarify, <laughs> it was an attempt to um, think about um, abstraction or what that means historically and I, I, don't, have, I don't have any idea. Um, um, so I had cutouts like this, this is a fairly small you know, framed cutout. Um, ultimately what I, ha what I wanted and, and didn't succeed here was to, to sort of have these pieces somewhat loose and, and shifting, there's sort of maybe three interlocking um, pieces of paper here, blue, red, and, and, and green. The colors aren't significant. Um, but each one of these images has a, a title drawn from uh, the historical record um, that Catherine was referring to, the Bureau of Refugees, um, the Bureau of Refugees uh, Friedman, the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees, and Abandoned Lands, um, that um, the records are very easily accessible online. So, you know, I had a moment where I thought, you know, I'm going to do a real research project and, you know, go to Washington, D.C. and go to the National Archive. And, of course, you can get everything um, pretty easily compiled on the Internet. So, um, so that, that sort of added an, another dimension of sort of ease of access. but. What I, um, what I was really um, trying to do in a very sort of quick, ex these are really sort of drawings, sort of, you know, in keeping with the early sketches that I've done. They're very quick um, studies or um, descriptions or translations of somewhat terse uh, lists of uh, riots or violent occurrences in the period after the Civil War from about 1865 to, I, I actually sort of concentrated mine to around 1868, um, 1866, 1868. Um, and then they sort of grew uh, and moved away from, you know, they went back and forth between uh, a post-Civil War USA kind of poem. I mean, really, that's what I was interested in, was there was a kind of, uh, poetry to uh, the list of atrocities where and a, a terseness, you know, Negro killed, you know, Montgomery County, um, you know, and it just goes on like that. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, John, Negro, you know, uh, hung from a grapevine, Montgomery County, da da da. And so you sort of go through these lists, like one after the other, and there's sort of an attempt to, to identify or even, um, you know, uh, um, I don't know, justify these fairly um, atrocious, everyday, random, violent attacks that were just like the, you know, like the bulk of, of, uh, well, I don't know, the bulk, you know, American, you know, you, you know the history in the United States of, of racist violence is, 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 it's huge and unsettling and, um, and sort of, I mean, it's pervasive, I guess, is what I'm saying. 
Um, anyway, I'm losing my train of thought and I'm losing my voice. In between those kinds of very quick um, descriptive or, or more like, yeah, descriptive translations uh, or poetic translations, I have these other moments where um, an image just sort of came to mind. Uh, I think I wound up coming, calling this, giving this piece two uh, titles. It was uh, Homecoming or, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the other title. Um, doesn't matter, this is a piece that's reversible, you can hang it either way. Um, and also in this project I was using the positive shapes and the negative shapes, so this is the same image that's at the bottom. I'm actually particularly fond of uh, that image for some reason. It was very clean and illustrative, and it made me happy that I could just be clean for a minute, even though um, the little, you know, phallic nude man <laughs> is um, somewhat grotesque. and. Um, I don't know. I, I, the reason this piece makes me happy is it, it, it reminds me of, you know, this idea of, of the positive representation of African Americans that um, I was getting a lot of crap about a few years ago, um, that my work should be more responsible. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't say that. Um, and this is that, this is my attempt at that, you know, this is. Um, so in any case, not all of these are that attempt. Um, so the works that I'm showing are small scale kind of collages and um, they're all kind of under the heading, the Bureau of Refugees. And then in the title I give the, um, um, the microfilm number from the website, from the Bureau of Refugees website and from the uh, National Archives records. Uh, so you can sort of, you know, do your research and look at the image and try and see if it makes sense. Um, and then the paintings, the smaller paintings that are more evocative and less um, sort of poetic descriptions are um, based on some of my own writing that was also somewhat terse. Like I just created a list of titles um, out of the, in the same um, breath. Um, this is a slightly larger collage. Um, I'm sorry, I am sort of um, blanking on the title. Sometimes they're a little bit elaborate. Um, procession for the Negro folk, in parentheses, hero. And this is uh, uh, authenticating the artifact. Um, and right now, um, I've been just cutting paper um, and sort of thinking about this house of cards scenario. The text pieces were kind of a, a little bit of a verbal house of cards. Um, you know, they could sort of collapse on, you know, morality sort of collapsing in on itself. And uh, these were uh, uh, me trying to do the figure without, you know, denying the figure. Uh, access. These are also very tiny um, paper cutouts, and um, they're, for the most part, barely hanging on to one another. Uh, I've had to sort of go back and glue a few just for um, the satisfaction of others, but in in my perfect world, they're just you know hanging there um, with little cuts to to keep them in place. Uh, I'll just show you a couple of views. And you know they're very you know they they aren't completely pristine. They're they're drawings first and foremost, and then sculptures maybe slightly after that. Um, oh, there's a title: Goodwill Pol Policy in a Quagmire. This is untitled domestic scene with ham. Um, now, I think the other thing that might be important to note is, uh, and that I haven't mentioned yet, is uh, while I started doing those projection pieces and starting to sort of move, trying to make the work more dimensional, I was actively avoiding making a film. Um, I had thought about it uh, a fair amount. It seemed like a logical progression from 
you know, doing the paper cutouts to doing some kind of shadow puppet something. Um, but, and, you know, shadow puppet performance certainly has a long history in and around the world. Um, but I wasn't ready for it. So uh, when you see these kind of dimensional uh, works coming, it's kind of either me working through an idea of, you know, working through the, the sort of barrier, my self-imposed barrier to getting, toward, getting to uh, the moving image, um, or I'm just messing around. This is the installation of some of the Bureau of Refugees um, cuts, these kind of quick uh, cutouts. And the gallery show with a very big pole in the middle. Um, now I wanted to share with you a sort of um, one-off uh, curatorial uh, uh, project that I was invited to work on. Um, in 2004, is that possible I was approached about this? Um, it is possible. And I, I was approached by the Met Museum, Gary Tintero, um, asked if I could do some kind of something in this small gallery space at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I said, sure, and then I kind of shrugged my shoulders and I took a lot of books and information from uh, you know, what was in the, in the collection. But it seemed like I might be being asked to do a Fred Wilson intervention and I didn't feel completely comfortable uh, with that because he does his own interventions quite well. Um, but, um, and I didn't have, I didn't have an idea that would, you know, would, that wouldn't, that would sort of counteract the Fred Wilson, like, aspect. Um, and I also, because of the size of the space, I don't know if you can see, but the ceilings are very low. Um, I also didn't want to put one of these installation pieces up there. It didn't make sense um, to me. Um, and then conveniently, um, um, New Orleans was destroyed and the, you know, the Bush administration didn't do anything about it and we were all devastated and didn't know, you know what, what to kind of think about um, the glut of images that you know, were received worldwide of the conditions in New Orleans. Um, and you know, there was this moment, I think after 9-11, when I heard artists, and I felt this myself, feeling like it was impossible to kind of tackle the enormity of the, um, of the, the sort of scale of, of devastation that was sort of felt internally, that was felt, you know, you know physically on the ground. And, um, and I had that same feeling, um, but I also remembered you know, my kind of residual feeling after 9-11 was, but, you know, it's awfully presumptuous somehow to think that, you know, you, the attempt to sort of tackle something large um, would be, it's presumptuous to think that one should be able to do it successfully. It doesn't mean that you can't do it at all. Right? Um, so, and I don't know, I don't know if I just made that up right now, but I think that that kind of thought just gave me license <laughs> Um, to, you know, I had this, this sort of, you know, opportunity to work with historical material and there was this event that I felt like I could, I felt very, and we all felt touched by, but I somehow I felt like the, the themes of, of, of race and, dis, you know, disenfranchisement and, um, you know, and, and, and catastrophe and water um, were so resonant with the, the narrative of um, the African diaspora, you know, just, you know, from the um, um, Middle Passage through slavery, through, you know, through it all. And I just thought, well, okay, I deal in, in stories and sort of mythologies and the intersection between facts and fiction and, um, here's a big fact, so I'll, I'll deal with the fictions and maybe we can have some kind of conversation. Um, I kind of felt like I wanted to hold a, um, a, a feeling in the room of, I wanted to hold the, the feeling of, of um, like the, of 
abjection that you know was kind of that I was responding to, look at watching CNN and not being on the ground and you know not being not being very helpful. You know, in any case, this is a show called After the Deluge, and um, it has wor work of my own, which is what the museum was requesting, and then has work from the museum's collection, which they were all very um, kind, actually, unusually generous with interdepartmentally in, um, in donating works. And it was sort of broken up loosely into um, three sort of areas. There was a, the sort of the port of call, you know, think, I'm sort of think, so it's like I'm riffing on Katrina, or I'm riffing on water and black bodies and history and historicity and disaster and you know, like all of it, you know, the middle passage and Africanness and the silhouettes and, you know, um, and when all of these things come into conflict um, or come together, does it sort of resemble uh, images from Katrina? So there's the, the sort of uh, one wall on the far right is the port of call and there's a picture of sort of a banjo player and there's a, an image by Winslow Homer of, of a black family in sort of tattered clothes going to dressing for carnival. And um, there's a far wall that has another uh, Winslow Homer and that has uh, something to do with sort of being out, out at sea somewhere, you know, sort of being adrift. And then the last wall, this is the first wall, the last wall is uh, about sort of inundation and being sort of, you know, caught up and, you know, either on fire or consuming, you know, consumed or drowning or, you know, sort of being like physically um, absorbed. Um, so, yeah, so you have your port of call, your uh, uh, sort of drifting area. And then in between, I have my, my little note cards that I type and collect images on. And so I have some of, uh, some of those pieces, and these are just two you know, three by five inch note cards with images on them of, of, uh, types, of types of disaster. Um, these are uh, some of the typed cards, and there's a, an image from a uh, 19th century novel on the Ku Klux Klan in there. Um, and then the, the last wall has this kind of centerpiece that's very black and impossible to see. Uh, 19th century English painter whose name I've forgotten. Uh, it's called After the Deluge, uh, and it's just a you know decimated. Uh, scene of, you know, sort of bodies hanging on, um, on branches and blackness all around. Um, there's also a, a painting by somebody from the Hieronymus Bosch school. Um, and then some of these little American primitives that I was doing, these small, um, small gouache paintings. This one's entrance to the Underground Railroad. And this one is familiar, and it's that same image from the from the 19th century novel, but slightly reworked, um, hybridized. So, so that's that's um, that was a, a, an immensely satisfying project. I got to play sort of crazy grad student, uh, or you know postdoc, you know going through the archives and trying to trying to kind of um, blend a certain amount of. Um, uh, a kind of a mad concept, you know, there wasn't a clear sort of thesis. It was really like bring all of these points together and then have them sort of hover un in an unsettled way. Um, there were images from, um, you know, I had a couple of books by, uh, uh, not Daumier, uh, Edou Edouard, the silhouette cutter, who had done a few images with, you know, sort of black figures uh, in them. And you know, there was a, a page that I wanted to to show where he's talking about the, um, you know, the the differences in character types. You know that, he, you know, he actually speaks about how um, he addresses racism in a way, in a racist way, where he speaks about how, uh, no, many people think that you know, you know, Negroes all look alike, but I, you know, I can see the differences, and here's you know how you can too. There was also a fantastic. Um, uh, book in the Mets collection. Uh, it was a sort of a, uh, I guess a kind of a limited edition. Um, it was about the uh, Amistad 
um, revolt, and it had in it a fantastic uh, engraving, hand-colored engraving of the massacre of the slaves uh, attacking the, the ship's crew, but inside all of the um, all of the um, sort of participants in the revolt were drawn in silhouette profile. Um, so I had those pages opened up as well, just to kind of keep water and silhouettes and blackness and slavery uh, uh, in the running. So, um, so eventually I got around to making film. Uh, and the first one was a sh very short and extremely um, rudimentary, clunky piece called Testimony. I was happy with its clunkiness because I actually didn't know that if I turned the camera on, it would record an image. I didn't quite trust it because I couldn't put my hand on it. Um, but it's cut paper and it's a fairly simple story of, a, of a, uh, an inversion of you know power. Um, and then another reversal after that. So you have sort of multiple kinds of inversions and reversals on top of reversals. Um, so that, you know, the, the conclusion is, is unsatisfying. Uh, and these are actually, they're stills from the, from the video, but I also made a series of prints. Um, there was a certain kind of texture to the Super 8 film that I also wanted to just kind of love for a little while and, you know, like sort of savor. Um, I think it's, it's also very important for you to know, and this is, I think, a running thread in my work, um, that my, I'm not too far away from any of this work, you know, I'm not sort of looking on history with a, in, a, in any kind of objective way, it's highly subjective and I'm always kind of um, sort of playing with that relationship between the, um, um, the, the factual and the um, and the histrionic. Uh, the second film was, uh, and these are just a couple of stills from Eight Possible Beginnings, or um, the history of African America. And they're sort of eight loosely defined vignettes that have something to do with storytelling. They have to do with um, the, the narratives that we tell ourselves, or maybe we in the black community in particular, about our origins. It's a, it's a kind of a mythology of, um, yeah, a, a, a mythology of origin. You know, you have your sort of water scenes and your um, sort of birthing scenes, and it's all kind of about birth and birth and more birth. Um, but there's never any nation. It's just kind of more birth. Um, and there's another inversion here where the the male character is the one who gives some kind of a birth that's kind of a castration and kind of a birth. Um, and here's uh, me and uh, Paula Wilson who's assisting me doing that. And I also wanted to kind of keep my male character involved, um, largely because my main focus has been sort of this sort of female, you know, somewhat androgynous, somewhat, you know, childlike, but entirely too wise figure and I wanted to kind of re see what would happen if I had a male figure and my male figures ultimately are nurturing um, jaunty dandies. Um, uh, not all of them. And the, um, another recent video, the first video was um, uh, God calling to me, calling to me from Somebody, anybody? The gray, no, calling to me from the angry surface of some gray and threatening sea, I'm sorry. It's actually a line out of uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And I keep changing the title because it had a couple of different lives as a single channel installation and then it went to a, a three channel installation and then it was a five channel installation. So I kept adding more words to the beginning and end of that sentence. Um, but it's uh, kind of an Oedipal story with another, um, uh, sort of male boy character uh, in there whose um, who's, uh, sort of mother figure um, is um, the source of some contention for him. And he has some trauma in his life, as you can see in the middle screen. 
Um, now, um, almost at the end, the most recent uh, pieces, or piece that I've uh, just finished video-wise uh, is here, and I made it for the AGO. Um, there were two, two narratives pulled from the um, Bureau of Refugees text, slightly more elaborate um, testimonies that were taken down by the officers. Um, and I, the other reason I was kind of interested in these Bureau of Refugees documents is because I've been kind of um, dealing with my own kind of legal, uh, the life, my life as a legal document and looking at, um, you know, the sort of ineffectual, you know, representation that, you know, uh, a body is in, in legalese. Um, so there are two, two stories. One is uh, Lucia Pulaski, and this is me and about a thousand people behind a very small screen um, trying to do a scene from that. Um, Lucia Pulaski, um, the text of it is fairly elaborate, very um, um, uh, thorough reportage of um, the events leading up to a riot that happened in Pulaski, Tennessee. Uh, in I think 1868, but the way that the uh, the way that the document is transcribed it really sort of describe it, it, it it's it uses a lot of funny language. This is why this piece is sort of text heavy because I wanted to see find a way to include the voice of this um, of of the officer who narrates or who constructs the story or reconstructs the story, and um, and he really sort of describes. Uh, at the outset, a female figure whose um, loose morals, or loose ways create, uh, are, are the instigating, um, yeah, they instigate this riot. But it seems unclear when you read the rest of the text if she's really involved at all. Um, and then the second piece um, is Six Miles. Um, from Springfield on the Franklin Road. And um, this is a fairly, um, from a fairly short text. There's actually two texts that I was looking at and the, the shorter document uh, is from the point of view of the little girl who was raped. And basically she says, you know, uh, three men came to uh, mother's house, to father's house. Um, uh, they threw out all our clothes, you know, killed father. They burned, like, burned up all our place. Uh, then two of them took me into the woods and had a forcible connection with me, signed Amanda Willis X. Uh, but it's much more sort of terse than that. And then the brother gives a much more sort of elongated, you know, narrative of, you know, what was said and what these guys did and, you know, who they were and how they acted. And I sort of parsed uh, it down to like this sort of uh, to this idea that here's here's this here's this family in um, in a sort of newly emancipated world kind of doing their own thing and I just wanted to create a little like uh, this is me thinking about painting again I wanted to make a painting for the gallery here that would sort of have these long scenes where it's really just sort of daily rural life kind of in a very you know like romantic way and um, and then to sort of just sort of matter-of-factly say, oh yeah, and then this happens as well and you have this sort of violent um, um, end. Um, the thing that, that's really complicated and not quite apparent in working on these, on these videos, uh, it might be apparent here, I don't know, is um, the amazing amount of hilarity that goes on in making them. Um, because after all, they are puppets, and um, and I make a point in the video also to you know try and keep our hands visible or our bodies or just turn the camera around as a way of you know reminding myself and reminding the viewer that um, you know we're not in this world, and in fact I don't know what this what really happened, you know. Like, I really don't. I only know what's written on this piece of paper, and I'm an imaginative sort of, I make things up. You know, that's what I do. You know, not even, even if I weren't an artist, that's what I do. And, um, and to, to just sort of complicate this idea that, 
um, any that I'm, that I'm out there sort of telling a truth. I mean, I might be looking at a truth and then making something that is true in its own way as, a, as an object, but they don't really, you know, meet in a happy, in a happy way. Um, so, you know, when you're actually, you know, physically manipulating puppets, I never thought I would be a puppeteer, although um, I did have a kind of a love for Jim Henson um, growing up. I made my parents take me to see a Jim Henson exhibit um, yeah, years ago. But, um, you know, when you're sort of doing, you know, different things with the puppets, you, you, I mean, you do start developing, you know, you're playing dolls. And it's all about uh, sort of transference and make-believe and, and um, you know, it complicates, it's like an extra complication on top of just this making up artwork, you know, that you're having this kind of social engagement with others that, that you know, borrows from the narrative, bastardizes the, <laughs> bastardizes the narrative, you know, you know, makes things up, tries to be respectful, you know, falls flat, you know, picks itself up, makes a ridiculous, you know, sick joke, and you know, it kind of goes on. And then, of course, the editing process is like, well, what do we want? You know, right now we just want this story. But there's, you know, heaps of material that um, I think is still kind of, it's like the, you know, there's the positive cut, you know, right now we've got the positive shape that's on the wall that's cut out, but there's this kind of negative space, this space around it and this hollow that's, that creates this hollow that I'm also very interested in, in uh, taking another look at. So that's the end of my slide presentation, and I have space for questions.